This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, April 9th. Derek Van Reipert here with Keith Law. Lots to talk about as we wrap up the week. We're going to discuss the Padres' options at short in the absence of Fernando Tatis Jr. Geraldo Perdomo got the call to Arizona. We'll talk about what he brings to the table and how long he might be with the D-backs this time around. We're also going to talk about some early surprises, good and bad, including Andrew Vaughn trying to learn a new position while adjusting to big league pitching. Keith, how's it going for you today? Um, okay, how about you? Not too bad, and uh, looking forward to breaking down some more players. I was excited to watch Chris Rodriguez over the weekend, by the way. We talked about him on our first show last week. He looks nasty. I really hope he can stay healthy. Yes, stuff is tremendous. Stuff has never been a question with him. Um, It is health and, to some extent, delivery, right? He had a back injury that essentially wiped out two years, um, 18 and 19, and then, of course, lost 2020 to the pandemic. so far, at least, you've seen, I think you've seen a little bit of the good and a little bit of the bad, right? You've seen the stuff, you've seen these capable of missing bats, but he's also already allowed eight base runners in four and two thirds innings. He's, I said before his debut, I was shocked that he was on the opening day roster because he hadn't pitched above a ball and he'd really barely pitched. I think he'd throw nine innings since 2017. And I don't know that this is necessarily the best way to continue to develop a pitcher like him, even though I'm not saying I am any less optimistic about his long-term upside, I wonder if this is the best way to get him to that upside, particularly if he continues to show that maybe his command and control just aren't ready for the major leagues. Right. I think once we have minor league games on the schedule, that can change the options for someone like Rodriguez too, right? Get him more reps, more innings in a game environment as opposed to having him go to the alternate site. So maybe that's part of the Angels thinking in this case as well. Uh, Let's get to the Padres. I mean, the big story of the week, Fernando Tatis Jr. suffering a slight tear in the labrum of his left shoulder. So it's his lead shoulder as a hitter, non-throwing shoulder. The injury was suffered during a swing in Monday's game. Currently on the IL, going through some rest and rehab, no surgery, at least for now. And it really puts Hassan Kim in a more prominent position for the Padres, at least for the next few weeks. I know Jake Cronenworth can play a little bit of shortstop as well. But when the Padres brought Kim in, what were your expectations for him overall? And do you think he can at least stick defensively at short and be a good option there for the Padres to sort of hold together while Tatis is out? Yeah, most people I'd never seen him. Most folks I talked to who had seen him play in the KBO or, or elsewhere in other tournaments said they thought he was probably not a major league shortstop, not for the long term. Now, could he fill in for a couple of weeks while we wait for Tatis Jr. to recover from the injury? Yeah, I think that's within his skill set. But somebody, he's not somebody, say that Tatis ends up having to have surgery and missing a good chunk of the season. I wonder if at that point the Padres would consider just calling up C.J. Abrams, who's their best prospect, but who's, of course, never played above a little bit of time in low A two years ago. But he's a real shortstop. Would they decide, well, the heck with it. We think this kid's super talented. We know he can play short, so he's a better defensive option at shortstop than any of the three guys, three possible shortstops currently on the Major League roster, Cronenworth, Kim, Jorge Mateo. Um, 
and also I'm not sure how much Kim is going to provide offensively. His uh, one of the big concerns that uh, scouts had from seeing him in the KBO was that they thought he did a lot of damage against the kind of pitching he just wasn't going to see here. The KBO's best pitching it would line up pretty well. We've seen guys come over like Young Jin Ryu come over from KBO and fit right in the middle or better of a major league rotation here. But the back of a KBO rotation, those are double A pitchers or worse. And the concern was that when Kim got to see better velocity inside and better breaking stuff, would he still be able to produce? I think he's probably more like a quality, high usage utility guy. I think I said at the time he signed, he might be a guy you get 400 plus at bats and have him play three or four different positions for you. And that this is why you have a guy like him, right? Maybe they knew Tatis was still a little bit risky with, you know, this is not a new injury for him. Maybe they wanted to have someone like him available as a multi-position backup for them. If he plays second base regularly, fine. But if Tatis gets hurt, then he can slide over to short and maybe fill in for a couple of weeks, not necessarily a couple of months, and be adequate over there. No one's going to replace Tatis, but be good enough that they'll still be able to continue to compete while they wait for Tatis to return. Yeah, so kind of thinking about this profile, is it maybe a league average bat if they spot him correctly? If he's not out there every day getting overexposed, facing every team's ace, if he's kind of used carefully, often getting the platoon advantage, is that what you see from him as a contributor on the offensive side? Yeah, you could probably pick your spots with a guy like that. Um, where, you know, I, like I said, I want to, you know, I'm, I'm actually going back to what I wrote about him in uh, free agency here. And scouts think he's not a lot to be able to stay at short, possibly moving to second or third, becoming utility infielder who moves be- between all three. And, that, you know, their concern, the biggest thing when we, we've really just got to see this more, but because of the way his swing works, because of his front side going soft as it does, if he can't hit major league velocity, guys like that don't really last very long. And it's very hard to hide a guy, to spot a guy who can't hit good major league velocity because everybody throws hard, right? There are very few guys who don't throw uh, with what to somebody coming over from KBO or from NPB would appear to be pretty good velocity. And so that's different than a guy with, say, a platoon split or a guy who maybe has a weakness against a particular off-speed pitch type where you could say, okay, today's opposing starter has a pretty good changeup. Maybe we keep him away from this particular guy. If it's really true that he has a hard time hitting good velocity, that's a harder thing to handle. It it really relegates him to a a very limited role. Yeah, I think that's a good concern to call out given the massive difference in velo and the KBO versus what current big league pitchers are bringing each and every day. Uh, I want to talk about Jake Cronenworth just for a moment because he seems like the other guy that could end up playing more. Started three games at shortstop in the shortened season. Of all the positions he can play, it doesn't seem like a spot where you necessarily want to put him. But if we're talking more about a short-term scenario where Kim and Cronenworth are holding it together, we're not calling up C.J. Abrams for some kind of long-term coverage for Tatis. Does Cronenworth play it well enough where you could get away with the platoon or are you concerned that there's a pretty big defensive hit the Padres would take by putting Cronenworth there? I think I've never seen Cronenworth play shortstop. I think it'd be a pretty huge defensive hit. I mean, I think their best option for the short term is to play Kim and see what he does, see how he responds to facing better velocity, see how he responds to playing shortstop here where the game is obviously a little faster and balls tend to be hit into play a bit harder and just essentially like a real-time evaluation on the player. Uh, while they figure out what is happening with Tatis. Right now, they're saying the right things. AJ Preller seems to think 
Tatis won't need surgery. He'll be back in a couple of weeks. Okay, you spend that time evaluating your internal options with Kim first on, on the list and letting him play as much as possible to see what you have. It's possible that they'll come out of this, Tatis will be back, and they'll say, oh, Kim's better than we realized, and this is great. Now we have another option, and he ends up playing more regularly at other positions where they give Tatis a couple more days off than they were otherwise planning to try to keep him healthy. Or they get to the end of a couple of weeks, and they realize that Kim can't do the job on a part-time basis or greater than that, and then have to look elsewhere. And that's where I think Abrams would potentially come into play. And I'm not advocating they rush Abrams to the big leagues, but I'm thinking about their system that that's probably the next guy. If they decided they had a long-term need at shortstop, they probably would go to him. Maybe they'd go to him. Maybe they'd let him play in double A in a couple of weeks in May and make sure that he you know, destroys that level, which I think a lot of people expect he'll be able to do, and then call him on. Kind of like our discussion with Bobby Witt Jr. a week ago, where it's not that we don't like Witt Jr., but we'd like to see him produce a little bit at a level between low A, or in Witt's case, the complex league, and the majors before calling him up and, and giving him this ultimate challenge. Yeah, I mean, for me, as someone who doesn't get a lot of looks at players, seeing production at double a gives me a lot more confidence about the possibility of someone surviving at least in the big leagues even if they don't thrive how important is it for you as an evaluator to get a look at someone against more advanced competition like that before making a big league projection well this would be you know i'm not just going to speak for myself because i don't see every player but i talk to scouts who you know in in total i i try to talk to scouts who've seen every player that i ever end up having to write about and Scouts always want to see players against the best possible competition. So this comes up a lot in the draft where we have cold weather, uh, high school position players from cold weather states. And one of the big concerns on them is a kid in Delaware, Lorenzo Carrier, who's committed to University of Miami. I think from what I hear, it sounds more likely he ends up at school. Um, he's not going to face very good competition here in Delaware. The high school baseball here is not not very good. We don't really have many prospects or even a lot of Division One prospects coming out of Delaware high schools. And in his case, he really didn't play, he didn't play at all in the fall. He really didn't play anywhere last summer, even where there were events. So scouts haven't seen him face good stuff, the best possible stuff. The advantage to high school players of going and playing in some showcases over the summer, like the area code games, for example, or the, or the East Coast Pro Showcase, uh, is that they face some of the best competition in the country. And it's the best for evaluating, especially kids from those cold weather states. There was a kid in Millville, New Jersey about 11 years ago where you know at the time the his spring i went to see him that spring you you just couldn't see him against good competition all of the good looks on that kid were really from the summer before and that's when the angels kind of zeroed in and said this you know we'd really like to get this guy with our first pick that was mike trout of course and you know trout just couldn't prove enough in the spring if you hadn't already made your decision on what you thought of him as a player the summer and fall before nothing in the spring was going to tell you enough and I think you can find the analogous uh, thought process when you're talking about minor league players, that there are some guys who they will just rake in the low minors. Uh, Bo Bichette's brother, Dante Bichette Jr., he destroyed the Gulf Coast League in his first pro summer. And then he never really hit again because I didn't think his swing would work at all. I didn't think he had the pitch recognition. I certainly didn't think he could play third base. But in the Gulf Coast League, he faced enough bad pitching that on the stat line, at least, he looked tremendous. And once he got to face, once he got up to higher levels and started facing better pitching, better pitching, better pitching, it was uh, very clear that his approach wasn't going to work. And then he wasn't able to make an adjustment. And so scouts who stuck with 
their previous evaluation. I'd seen him in high school. I was not a fan at all. Even after he went and raked in the Gulf Coast, he was hang on. We got to see him do this against better competition before we change the evaluation. Yeah, uh, that I mean, that definitely falls in line with how I try to look at players again, more from a statistical perspective. Mm-hmm. There's a certain cutoff where it's great. You're you're mashing in the lower levels. You're dominating as a pitcher in the lower levels, but it doesn't mean anything until you get to at least double A for me in a lot of cases, unless the tools are just so incredibly good where you have pretty much universal evaluations that agree that you're talking about an easy future big leaguer and probably like a perennial all-star grade talent. You know, look, if you've got a 17 or 18 year old and he, well, then we don't really have short season anymore. So if you have an 18 year old, say in low A and he's really raking or he's missing a ton of bats, that is obviously going to be a lot more interesting to me than a 21 year old doing the same thing. Bobby Wood Jr. turns 21 at the beginning of June, sending him to low A. And I don't think the Royals are going to do that because they believe he's far more advanced than that. But if they send him to low A, one, of course, he's going to produce there. I have no doubt if you send him to low A, he would perform immediately to a point where people would be saying, why is he at this level? But on the flip side, we'd also say it's not really proving a whole lot because given his age, he doesn't have the experience because of the pandemic. Given his age and where his body is for a typical 21-year-old, of course he's doing that. Of course he's mashing against probably a lot of younger competition in low A. So that's all the more reason to push, you know, when the minor league season starts, he even more so than Abrams, because he's, I think, close to a year older, they should be both, they should both go directly to double A, because I think those guys facing A ball pitching, they're not going to prove anything. They're not going to learn anything. And they're not going to prove anything. Their respective clubs will not learn anything about how advanced they are. And if I think in both cases, we could see both those players in the big leagues whit more likely than Abrams at some point this year. And if I'm sitting in the Royals front office trying to make that decision, I want to see Witt go to double A, face some guys who not only have better stuff, but can locate it better and let him destroy that league or let him struggle there, make an adjustment and then start destroying it. I'll feel better about calling him up. Do you also have concerns when you assign a player to a level that's too low, there's going to be bored, like aside from not getting better, like they're just going to be out there basically just wasting time. They're not getting anything at all out of it because there's literally nothing they can work on. They know they should be at a higher level. Yeah. And I think that adds to the difficulty of, of getting that development call right as well. Yeah, that's a that's a thing. That's absolutely a real thing. This is the player you always hear this about is Hanley Ramirez, where he, I mean, I saw him in double A. I was like, that guy, that's the one we're all talking about because he just, he looked, not only did he look disinterested, but none of his tools would really show through because he wasn't playing very hard. And, you know, I mean, even at the time, I was saying, well, if this guy's really that talented and he's not taking the game seriously, should I not hold that against him? And then, of course, he was traded not long afterwards and became, for a short period of time, he was a superstar. So I don't know. Maybe that was I certainly always wrong to uh, dismiss him in any way because he had all this ability and got to the higher level and he started playing harder almost immediately. I heard that from a scout on George Valera, who's one of the uh, one of Cleveland's best prospects this year, that they thought not that he was disinterested, but they thought as he moved up and the stakes were higher and there were more fans and the level of competition was better, that he would continue to rise to the occasion that you would see a better player there as he continued to move up. And Scott was not saying this in a derogatory way at all. He was saying this guy's going to be better than we think because of his belief that the way that Valera plays, he would continue to improve and continue to play harder as he continued to move up the ladder. And so that is that is a thing. I, I I do worry about sending a guy for a level that to which he's not suited. I usually voice it more from the front office perspective. You're not learning anything. He's probably not developing. But you could absolutely have a player just become disinterested and say, why, why am I here? I'm better than this. 
and I need to be, you know, m- most good players do want to play the best. It seems like we do have teams airing more on the aggressive side with assignments, at least early on. We talked about it with some of the guys that made opening day rosters that were surprises. We saw it over the weekend. Geraldo Perdomo got the call to Arizona, in part because Nick Ahmed is on the IL and they needed an actual shortstop. Uh, Cattell Marte is banged up right now. I think he's getting an MRI as we speak, so we don't know how long he's going to be out. So this stay for Perdomo might be more than a few days, but he's making a big leap. We last saw him play at high A in 2019. But he's one of those guys, Keith, for his age especially, his plate discipline is excellent. I mean, if you if you said take some numbers and, and, and like tell me what you trust in a player who hasn't played at double A yet, plate discipline like we've seen from Perdomo age to level is the kind of thing I would trust, maybe giving him a chance to hold his own even upon arrival. Yeah, the fact that he ra- so rarely strikes out um, is it, such a positive sign, especially now, right, where so many hitters do strike out. Pitchers are are better. They're throwing harder. So many hitters are, uh, at the very least, taught not to worry about striking out, and thus not really taught enough of a two strike approach. I am not. I don't get overly worried about strikeouts, especially from power hitters. But it'd be nice if you had a two strike approach. It'd be nice if you did something where you could, in in the right situations, shorten up and just try to get on base rather than simply selling out, continuing to sell out for power. Uh, I think they called Perdomo up because he's a shortstop. He's absolutely a shortstop. He's going to end up being a plus defender at shortstop. And the thought being, the, the thought on his bat being, well, he's going to put the ball in play. And he may get into, he's probably not going to get into any power right now. I guess I'd be surprised if he got into power now, although the way the ball is flying this first week or so, maybe he will get into power. There's Dylan Carlson, who I love. I love Dylan Carlson, but Dylan Carlson's got four, four, four home runs, right? He's on pace for 104 homers this season. <laughs> so but in Perdomo's case, I think it's a go out and play great defense. We know you can do that and put the ball in play and we'll see what happens. And that would probably be enough. And I don't – because you, you raised this point earlier, the lack of a minor league schedule this month probably gives some more logic to teams making some of these aggressive call-ups now and saying we'd rather have – Given that we have the need, we'd rather have Geraldo Perdomo playing actual games in the big leagues, even if it's a challenge for him, rather than having him play at the alternate site where I've written about this. We have other people have written about this. They do their best, but those aren't real games and no one's going to take, no one's treating them like real games. You're not seeing that kind of competition. Yeah. I mean, an environment that really breeds staleness from a training perspective in every possible way. I wonder if that was part of the thinking for the Padres with Tucapita Marcano, because I didn't see him getting anywhere close to the big league roster. And they're basically just using him as a pinch hitter. They haven't even given him a start yet. I think once there are games for him to play in, he's going down. He's going to play in games in the upper levels of the minor leagues. Maybe we see him again. I don't know, September possibly, or if a couple injuries strike, maybe he gets a call later this summer. But I don't expect him to get a lot of opportunities uh, in the short term, even though he's on the roster. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. 
Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra-soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB Show. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's talk about Andrew Vaughn for a moment, Keith, because the White Sox with the Eloy Jimenez injury are scrambling a bit. Your mean Mercedes has been a nice first week story, to say the least. And part (laughs) of that story has been Andrew Vaughn having to learn how to play left field while learning how to hit big league pitching for the first time. And I don't think you or I want to draw sweeping conclusions from five games about any player ever. But how much of a concern do you have about new defensive positions impacting a player trying to make adjustments at the plate at the same time. I think that's a real thing. I don't love having players try to learn new positions at the major league level. Uh, And in Vaughn's case, the last time we saw him, high A at the end of his draft year, so he was drafted and the White Sox pushed him aggressively and had him finish the summer in high A. And he wasn't great there. He wasn't terrible. And of course, it was a long season for him. For college players to play that deep into the summer is you want to cut them a little bit of slack. But it's not like he destroyed high A and people thought, oh, he'll be ready for the majors in, in 20 minutes here. Then on top of that, to ask him to play left field, and right now it really kind of doesn't look like he's going to be able to. He's looked pretty bad out there. Um, and the White Sox defense in general has not been very good, but I think Vaughn in particular um, has really cost them. And I feel bad for him. He's being asked to do something that at the least he's never done before. Not He, did, he never played the outfield in college that I could see. So maybe he played it in high school. I'm not even sure about that. It's just the most recent time he might have played it. To ask a guy to learn that position, to learn the outfield when he's basically a first baseman, uh, at the big league level where, again, the balls are being hit a lot harder at that level. The game is just faster. That's a hell of a challenge for a guy who also, by the way, has to learn to hit major league pitching. And Vaughn, I like Vaughn a lot, but he's punched out six times in 13 at-bats already, six and 17 PA, so um, more than a third of his plate appearances in a minuscule sample, obviously. But yeah, there's a lot going on for him right now. And I still like Andrew Vaughn a lot as a player, and I'm not even necessarily hindsight criticizing the move to call him up, but I do wonder about, I mean, I said before, I didn't think he'd be able to play it. And and the early returns in five games are that at the very least, he's got a long way to go to being a competent defensive left fielder. And I hope that doesn't end up, that he doesn't carry that back over to the plate, which is where his value is always going to be anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what hopefully would take some of the pressure off of him, he's not replacing a gold glove defender in left field. As much as we all love Eloy Jimenez and what he does as a hitter, he is a well below average defensive left fielder. So the bar is pretty low, but making that leap and still just getting used to big league pitching, I think just makes everything more difficult for him. I think Vaughn's the kind of guy, if this struggle lasts 
you know, throughout the entire first month, high minors are in his range very easily, right? They, they can afford mm-hmm. to send him down for a little while and say, look, hey, you're going to be back here in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. We're still a big part of our plan. Let's get you right. You know, I think that would easily be something that they could do with Andrew Vaughn. I was also wondering if there's a kind of related story happening in Milwaukee right now with Keston Hira. He's O for the season thus far. He's struck out in half of his plate appearances. Yep. I saw one really awkward play in the opening series against the Twins. There was a throw that was a little bit off first base, and he kind of spun into the first baseline to catch it. I think he probably forgot where he was on the field momentarily and got run over by Mitch Garver. Uh, clearly a guy that, even at second base, never looked all that comfortable I wonder how much the new position might be impacting his slow start at the plate. And this is a guy that has some swing and miss in his game, even when things are going right. At least there was plenty of swing and miss in 2019 when he came up and did some damage in the heart of that Brewers lineup. Well, there really wasn't in 2018 or prior. He was When he was in college, he was a hitter. He was a hitter more than anything else. He was actually truly a hitter because his junior year, he had an elbow injury that never did have surgery, but he didn't play the field. He just DH'd his entire draft spring, and he was a top 10 overall pick because everyone thought he would hit. I actually had him ranked, I think, a little bit below that, but still, everyone believed he would hit. Nobody thought he would get to much power, and then he, in 2019, it seemed like he really changed his approach a bit too much, and 20. 20 went even further in that direction where it was just selling out for power uh, and not caring about the strikeouts, not caring about swinging and missing to the point that it made him just a much less valuable player. And it seemed like uh, the plan for him this year was going to be to try to get him back to where he used to be as a hitter, to try to get him back to making more contact. And uh, even if that meant giving up some of the power and it's, you know what, it's fine. If you're going to play first base, but you can hit, 300 plus, which was certainly the projection for him coming out of college and get on base and hit just double digit home runs could still be a perfectly valuable big league regular. But as far as I can see, some of this is just he's he's devolved even further in his approach. I thought he was going to, I guess I thought he was a breakout candidate for this year. It's like, this guy's always hit. And he had the approach that's absolutely still in there. It's not like this guy just never knew how to hit. It's not like he never made contact. But I did not think what we saw in 60 games last year of him just selling out for power was really who he is as a hitter. I still don't think that's really who he is as a hitter. But at this point, if he's still doing this, he's not going to go 0 for April probably. But if they get to the start of the minor league season and he is still striking out a rate, a rate like this and still selling out for power, the answer unequivocally will be to send him to AAA and say, you come back when you hit. And that's it. Your goal is to go down there and make contact. We are not looking for power from you. We are looking for you to be the hitter you were when we first drafted you and the hitter that you were in 2017 after the draft and in 2018. You go down there and you make contact. You make hard contact again like you used to, and then you will come back up. That hitter is still absolutely in there. And I don't even think it's the position change because I think that this devolution process in his swing and his approach started before this year. Yeah, I think the interesting thing for me with Hira is that the power looks like pretty easy power. And he does it to all fields. He hits balls out to the deepest parts of the park. He hits the ball out the opposite way. Uh, I think the the problem he has, the biggest problem he has that I see, is the high fastball. And I wonder, is the high fastball something you're just not going to see nearly as much of, at least with command, in the minors, right? Like, you're going to get high fastballs that you can catch up to in the minors, so you're not going to strike out on those pitches. You're going to drive them. And you get to the big leagues, more velocity, more command, a little more ride, a little more movement, and suddenly you're missing pitches that you thought you could hit. And making that adjustment, that could take a lot of time. 
That's true. Even when he is making contact now, though, he's barely hitting, like he's making horribly, like very low quality contact. Now, if you had said to people even two years ago, even when he started to strike out a little bit more, but people would say, no, Hayori's going to, he's going to make hard contact. It might not be power, but it should be plenty of hard contact. But so far this year, in a very tiny sample, he's got nine balls hit into play. But yeah, he's barely, he's not making any hard any of the hard contact that he usually makes and i i i I agree with you in the sense that with what you said at the beginning of that which is that there could be some easier power in there just from him hitting the ball hard guys who hit the ball hard can can end up getting into maybe a little more power than you expect they don't show the raw power they're not big bp hitters for power but more power shows up in the games because you're just hitting the ball hard and as long as you're not hitting it on the ground some of those balls aren't going to end up leaving the park. But he's not even getting himself in a, in a position to do that because the quality of contact has been so much lower. And you're right, because he is, yeah, he's swinging, and again, in a tiny sample, but he is swinging and missing it way too many fastballs. And again, I mean, this comes back to, lots of guys comes back to Kim. This has been my criticism of Kevin Biggio. Man, if you can't hit a big league fastball, it is a short and brutal career for you. Yeah, it really is. I'd be a fool to have brought up the White Sox and, a few minutes ago and not ask you about Yermin Mercedes. I mean, how sustainable is his approach? How sustainable is he as a big league hitter? Because he was always just this positionless guy in the minors that hit enough. I mean, he's been an above average hitter in terms of WRC plus at literally every stop in the minors. And he had one big league plate appearance prior to this season has a path to DH. As long as he keeps hitting, how long does this last? Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm not, it's a great story, obviously. (laughs) And, you know, I just, I don't see it at all. Like, could, could he be, like, fine and adequate DH? Sure. He's generally been pretty old for wherever he's played. I'm just, just pulled up his record. Like, he was in Winston-Salem in high A in 2018. He was 25 years old. I mean, I live in Wilmington, so I see that league or what was that league. 25-year-olds are pretty rare, and generally those guys never, ever see the big leagues. Um you know, good for him. It's a great story for him to come back from independent ball. He's on his, I think, his third organization now. You know, one at bat last year, 27 is his debut. Now he's 28. Obviously, I'll root for him, but if I'm a realist, a lot of that production in the minors was probably just a function of being older and stronger than a lot of the pitching he faced. Um, or, you know, going to Charlotte 2019 when AAA was using the juiced baseball, and then suddenly he was hitting for power that's probably not really in there so you know i I make it sound like i'm rooting against him and i'm not we uh, i love good stories like that but i gotta be a realist you know what was he nine for nine and then since then he's already started to come back to earth you know i I, again i kind of root for him these things are fun but if you you ask me do i think it's sustainable and the answer is no you know the 2019 triple a numbers seem completely worthless to me like it's Mm -hmm. so hard to draw any meaningful conclusions from those Uh, and the pitching side especially if you pitch in the pcl with that rabbit ball in 2019 yes uh, good luck i mean taylor widener had an 810 era in 100 innings at triple a reno that year a 174 whip uh, struck out you know more than a batter per inning and was pretty good in the minors before that if you look at his 2018 at double a i mean on paper at least it was an interesting enough profile where you'd say, okay, this guy at least as a back-end, maybe spot starter, has some sort of big league future. He came up and pitched really well in his debut this season against the Padres. Uh, what do you make of Widener as a guy that definitely was among the many pitchers who had just a useless 2019 in a really 
hitter-friendly environment. Yeah, well, that's the problem, right? The PCL can be pretty hitter-friendly. The Reno is a terrible, terrible park for pitchers. Albuquerque is a terrible park for pitchers. I mean, it's not its not just that your home games are in a tough park, but if you play in one of those PCL hitters' parks, you're probably playing a lot of your road games in the other PCL hitters' parks because they're all clustered together geographically. And so, you know, I'd never want to send a pitcher to Albuquerque if I could avoid it because it's, I think I – mean, you know, I don't know. We'll have to see how everything shakes out after the affiliation shuffles, but it was one of the two or three worst places for a pitcher in all of minor league baseball before the reshuffling. So um, I agree with you. I would throw out basically anything I saw from, from AAA, especially from the PCL, from those parks for pitchers and for hitters too. Makes the hitting stats useless as well. I would throw all of that out from 2019. You know, I've liked Widener some as a potential back-end starter. I know guys who... Um, I, I know scouts who've seen him have written him up more as like a potential league average guy. I think the range of outcomes for him could be anywhere from swingman, good swingman. I mean, I, I don't use that as a derogatory sense. A guy who could throw 100 plus innings for you, making some starts and doing some long relief work, while um, or all the way up to potentially a league average starter. I think that's probably a little bit out of his reach, but um, – I do know scouts who've seen him and who've liked what they've seen enough from him that they think he can start. I am curious whether that can continue. He can continue to have success relying this much on his four-seamer, where you know, I think his four-seamer is fine, but it is not um, It's not an elite, elite pitch where he's likely to generate a tons, ton of swings and misses off of it, that that would allow him then to continue to pitch like that um, and still have tremendous success. Uh, pitching with, you know, again, with his four-seamer, it was 70% of the time so far this year. Yeah, that seems like a heavy, heavy fastball rate for a guy that should not really rely on that pitch. Uh, Everything in the profile kind of reminds me of Chase Anderson, maybe because Anderson came up originally with the D-backs, you know, change-up heavy profile, can kind of flash being a league average starter when it goes well and gets smashed when it's not, right? When he's getting too much of the plate, especially with that fastball he's going to get hit. So I don't know. Like I'm, I'm at more of the back end starter appeal here. Widener has other, like his sliders, I think better. I haven't seen him live in a while from behind the plate, but I, I think his slider is a better pitch. I don't know what's going on if this is some kind of new plan for him, but I have a feeling if he's going to have any kind of sustained success, it's going to be trading out some of those fastballs for particularly sliders and some changeups. Uh, especially if he's going to be in any role where he's facing hitters two or occasionally maybe three times in a game. Yeah, I think that makes a, a lot of sense. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation all through a barely-there poke-hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be a foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely, minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash theathletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Postoperative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. 
Uh, speaking of some good stories from the first week, Akil Badu sort of uh, took the baton from Yermin Mercedes after the weekend, and he's getting a ton of attention this week. He homered on the first pitch that he saw as a big leaguer, hit a grand slam the next day, and then walked off the Twins the day after that. So that's a pretty nice three-day stretch to start a career. And Badu's 2019 was cut short after just 29 games at high A, so yet another player making the leap from high A to the big leagues because of the incomplete, non-existent 2020 minor league season and his own injury in 2019. It just got me wondering, Keith, was this a good year to take a chance on a Rule 5 pick, given that players who might have performed well in the minors had there been a season last year, they would have been added to the 40-man roster and protected by their former club. Was there a, a better opportunity than usual to procure legitimate big league talent this time around? And there, it seems like, first of all, I was surprised the Twins didn't protect Badu. I was thought they liked him. It's not like he was a high enough draft pick. And I wonder if they just took a, a, a gamble that didn't work out um, because figuring he was kind of, he had elbow surgery in May of 2019, didn't come back then, didn't play 2020, figuring, well, no one's going to take this guy because he was hurt and we haven't seen him in forever. And a, a bad gamble. I was surprised when he was left unprotected in the first place because the guy was a pretty legit prospect. He was one of their top 10 prospects. I think I had him my top five twins prospects at one point in the past. Um, and so, you know, especially teams, if you're a bad team like Detroit, where your rosters, the back end of your rosters just kind of, you got spots to play with, right? Then you've got an extra roster spot now. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I've been down on the rule five draft for 10 years since they uh, expanded protection rules. And there's just, there are fewer prospects available to go after, but in a year where we were dealing with less information, does that mean the teams might have been might have had a hard time making evaluations of their own and made more mistakes like that? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I, Badu was one of the few guys taken in the draft. Where I was like, okay, I like that. I could see that. I don't know if he's ready, but I'd sure like to have him. If you tell me I could have him in my system for fifty grand, I just have to try to find a way to use or protect him for a year. Great. Now, I also think Akil Badu over the course of this season is probably going to struggle um, and maybe end up having to take on more of a part-time role. But I, if you're the Tigers right now, you're thinking, well, at least we don't have to hide him, right? Mm -hmm. This is not a guy who can only get 50 at-bats the rest of the year. I think he's better than that, at least. We'll be able to use this guy, and it's not just a dead roster spot for the rest of the season. And then next year, if you decide... We'll see. Maybe he never has to go back to the minors. That's the best case scenario. Maybe he has to spend part of next year just in AAA or something, um, depending on who else they have too, right? There's all the rule. But the other, one other thing with the rule five guys is it really depends on where the openings are on your roster. And that's less about patience and less about who's available. But you've got to have some playing time to be able to give the guy um, unless you're planning to literally just hide him and have him, you know, have 50 at bats or throw 20 innings the entire season. Yeah, the Tigers were one of the perfect possible landing spots for Badu, though, because as a left-handed hitter, I think he could play on the big side of platoon with someone like Jacoby Jones. I, I think one thing that I've always been critical of, and I've spent exactly zero days receiving paychecks from major league organizations to provide my insight, but one thing I've always been very critical of is when teams do not use valuable at-bats and innings when they're rebuilding on young players. They trot out 27, 28-year-old guys who will not be on their next good team. They just run them out there, and you think, what's the goal here? What are you doing? What are you learning? What are you actually doing? That's a currency to have that playing time available. And I think giving those reps to Badu as opposed to Jacoby Jones or a Harold Castro or even a Nico Goodrum, that makes sense to me. That seems like development done right, playing time used correctly. 
Yes. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, that's to me, if you're, and there's, there are other teams in this boat, right? Baltimore is one of them. Um, Colorado should be one of them, although I'm not really clear what their current major league strategy is. But if you're, you know, you're not going to the playoffs this year, right? You, you should use all your playing time is a finite resource and you should use it in a way that allows you to evaluate as many players as you possibly can. So it should be all of your internal options who are close to close enough to the big leagues who you could potentially put on the roster and give some playing time to. This is essentially what San Diego is doing a bit with Kim now. They're getting to play him regularly, more regularly maybe than they planned. And they're playing him at shortstop where I'm sure they have no actual plan to do so. And they'll just kind of see how it goes, right? At the end of a couple of weeks, they should have a pretty good idea of what he is as a player. Um, but also you should be, go- you should try a rule five guy. You should be active looking at players on waivers or players who, you know, they each fall looking at minor league free agents who, you know, hey, we got good reports on this guy or we used to like this guy and we happen to have a spot. We happen to have some innings we can give to this guy. You should be cycling through players in those. And you know, to me, that's much better than, you know, it's, well, they're just tanking. Well, they're just trying to be bad, which one, I don't think tanking is that good of a strategy in baseball anyway, because obviously it's not like you draft a guy and then he's in the big leagues shortly there afterwards. But also the tanking would imply well, we're just going to get lousy players. And that's a wasted opportunity. You, you're, like I said, playing time is a scarce resource and you should utilize it as if it were a scarce resource and figure out how best to allocate that to different players to make evaluations. Maybe you'll find, look at what the Giants have done. I don't think Donovan Solano and Mikey Stremski and Alex Dickerson are maybe as good as they seem to be last year, but they're something, right? Those guys are something. And they found those guys off the scrap heap because they, they they uh, had the they chose to allocate playing time to those guys as opposed to maybe more known quantities who didn't have any possible upside. Right, and I would see guys like Yastrzemski and Solano and say, okay, well now when a contending team needs an extra outfielder or an extra infielder, they become bench players or semi regulars on better teams, and you're getting at least a low minors prospect back. And you couldn't right. get that player for nothing. So, you know, you use the time correctly. You use that opportunity to actually make your team better by finding a player who deserved the time and kind of showing the league, yeah. like, hey, this guy can do it. This guy can play. He can help you. He can contribute. Yeah, and this isn't new. Teams have been doing this for a while. I mean, Oakland was doing this 20 years ago. They were particularly doing it. They love to do it with closers, right? Get a guy in, maybe make a small tweak, make him the closer, gets a bunch of saves, trade him. Next guy in, do the same thing. Okay, this is a little more sophisticated than that because nobody's just falling for a save total at this point. But and frankly, these guys are more real. Do I think Donovan Solano? Look, I don't think he's a 400 hitter, but do I think he can play? He can hit enough to help a contender in a multi-position utility role where he's playing really pretty regularly? Yeah, absolutely. And would contenders give up? Would they see that from him and potentially give up? You know, a, a decent pitching prospect for him. Yeah, of course they would. I mean, to me, that's a win-win. He's 33, right? You're not, this is not a player that the Giants are going to turn around and give a four-year deal to. They should be looking at essentially an exit strategy. This is great. We love him. We love what he gave us. Okay, now we turn this around and convert him into one or more players who are potentially pieces of the next good Giants Giants club, which might be, might only be a year from now, might be two years from now, but you do need to convert guys like him or if Yastrzemski hits better as the season goes along, he's 30. You convert those guys. They can help a contender in a more limited role. You convert those guys into players who can help you more a little down the road. Yeah. Nice long-term maneuver there by by doing it that way. 
And I think, you know, with the Tigers too, the other factor that teams have to weigh is if you put a more interesting product on the field, even not necessarily a more competitive in the short term product on the field, people will come to games. You will sell tickets. That matters. That's part of this calculus too. I think the Tigers fit into a description that Britt Jolie used. It was fun bad. Like they are actually a fun bad team because of pitching mostly. Casey Mize and Tarek Skubal in particular are two guys that you really want to watch when they take the mound. It's probably going to be a year of growing pains for both of them. But as we start to watch how their early starts play out, what should we be looking for that might suggest that they're ready to take a step forward from what we saw in their 2020 debuts? Yeah, that's. Um... I mean, the problem with these 2020 stats, right, is that they're, 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 it felt like a bigger sample. Maybe because, especially if they played a whole season, but the whole season was less than half of the season. And they weren't necessarily facing the same level of competition because a lot of guys were just absent from all or part of last season. They opted out, they got injured, they had, you know, a lot of, some of them contracted COVID. And when they came back, they didn't really seem to be quite the same players they used to be. So, to me, I have sort of taken the attitude that 2020 is, it happened. We can't just ignore it, but put so much less weight on it than I would otherwise do. Um, and almost ask players who did nothing until 2020 or maybe just debuted in 2020, I think is what you actually specifically asked about. Sort of thinking, going into it with the mindset of they probably need to prove it again. Like, let me see this one more time from players like this over a longer period against maybe slightly better competition. And if they hold serve, if they continue to produce at kind of the same level um, or just so, show some of the same real underlying skills or the plate discipline or power or ability to miss bats, great. I'm much more likely to buy into that. But rather than, you know, usually if a guy has just a great rookie year and he plays more or less a full season, you go into the second year thinking, well, he's more or less proved it. You'd love to see it again, of course, but it's a pretty good size sample, and there are probably some things we can say with certainty about that player. I don't feel that way about 2020, and I think that you know Cabrian Hayes. I love Cabrian Hayes. I thought he was the 13th best prospect in all of baseball. He should have won Rookie of the Year last year. I also recognize that he had a great month, and obviously he's hurt now. We hope he comes back really soon. But yeah, he had to prove that all over again to for me to say, yes, he is absolutely the player I believed he was going to be. And I don't know that he's going to do that. I don't think he's going to produce it anywhere near the same level over the course of a full season. And I say that as somebody who really believes Cabrian Hayes in the long term, he's going to make a bunch of all-star teams. But what we saw from him last year and what was actually a pretty small sample shouldn't really color our opinion of him going forward because of the sample size problem and just because of it's it's recency bias. It's availability bias and it's recency bias. It's all the major league data we have. It's the last thing we saw from him. Yeah, I mean, my background is, is heavy in, in fantasy and recency bias shapes what players cost on draft day in terms of auctions and, and snake drafts. And with Cabrian Hayes, it was just at this level where you couldn't even... You couldn't even wrap your head around treating him like a top 100 overall sort of player coming into the season. It just, it, I couldn't do it anyway. It's like I, I liked him as a prospect because defensively, he was going to come up and play every day. The hit tool was ahead of the power, so you probably weren't going to have a guy that couldn't hit big league pitching at all. But you're going to have to wait for him to unlock that power. And because it came right away, expectations just went pretty unfairly through the roof for what he would do over a full season in 2021. Yeah, he's an elite defensive player, maybe an 80 defender at third base. He and Nolan Arenado and Manny Machado, that's three pretty tremendous defenders at third. I mean, I know Arenado fans may not love to hear this, but Hayes might be as good. 
and that's great. That's not for if you're a fantasy player, that's not as particularly useful. I don't think Hayes is that great of a fantasy player. I think he's a way better real life player than he will be a fantasy player. Yeah, that was always sort of my my take on him too. And it's possible that with the rabbit ball and with a few tweaks, maybe more power comes along and he gets there. But at least you know he's going to play a ton because of that defense. Mm-hmm. We got to go. But before we go, an offer for new subscribers, three ninety nine a month gets you in the door. Theathletic.com slash baseball show is the place to get that. If you enjoyed this podcast, take a moment to rate and review it and tell a friend about it. Since we're new, you can hear more of Keith on the Keith Law Show. This week, Keith talked to White Sox pitcher Lucas Giolito, so be sure to check that out. And Keith's second book, The Inside Game, is now available in paperback, too, so you should pick up a copy of that if you haven't already done so. You can hear me on Rates and Barrels and our other fantasy baseball shows on Twitter. He, of course, is at Keith Law. I'm at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show is back on Monday. Have a great weekend.